of what that could look like in our lives was putting on a pair of glasses, kingdom glasses. When we wear kingdom glasses, we're able to see our world, our circumstances, our suffering, and also our sin through the lenses of the kingdom. We also see ourselves and our Savior more clearly. Jesus said this was the ultimate solution to our struggle with anxiety. Of course, there's more to say about fighting and overcoming anxiety, but I believe putting on kingdom glasses must be a factor. When we put kingdom glasses on, we remember two primary things. First, we remember that God is our loving Heavenly Father who has promised to provide all our needs. Second, we remember that Jesus is our gracious King who is ruling over the details of our lives and who has promised to use all the moments of our lives for our good. So as we look at our suffering and our sin, we are summoned to believe in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our sin, that our Father is loving us right now and that our King is ruling over us for our good. So what does this look like in the midst of our sin? Jesus has called us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And seeking his kingdom righteousness includes pursuing obedience to Jesus at all times. That should be our highest priority. But Jesus knows that we will struggle with sin. We will fail to obey. That's where he turns next in the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom life discourse. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, Jesus turns to discuss how we should deal with the sin in our lives as followers of Jesus. I'd like to read the whole paragraph as we begin. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus begins by telling us how not to deal with sin. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 is probably the most quoted verse in all the Bible in today's society, in this country at least. And it usually goes something like this. A follower of Jesus is talking with someone who isn't a follower of Jesus. In the course of conversation, the follower of Jesus makes a critical comment about the behavior of some celebrity or politician. Gosh, that guy is ruining his life with all his partying, getting drunk all the time. He's destroying himself. The non-believer then responds, usually in a kind of condemnatory, judgmental, corrective tone. Judge not that ye be not judged. In good old King James English, of course. The non-believer is quick to remind us that we are not supposed to judge. And he means that we shouldn't be critical of the behavior of other people. We don't have the right to say that somebody else's actions are sinful. But is that what Jesus is saying? 
Certainly not. What does Jesus mean by the command not to judge? I looked up the verb judge in Webster's Dictionary, and it lists six different definitions. And I looked up the Greek verb Matthew uses here in the standard Greek dictionary, and it listed six different definitions. So it's legitimate to ask the question, what does the word judge mean here? What act is Jesus forbidding? I'll give you the two main options. He could mean, don't express your negative opinion about someone's behavior. That's what most non-believers mean when they quote Jesus' words here, isn't it? But does that fit with the rest of the statement? Condemned. In other words, if you step up to condemn your brother or sister, someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, you should expect that God will condemn you on judgment day. Judgment, in terms of discernment and even classification, is an important part of the life of followers of Jesus. Jesus repeatedly calls us to draw conclusions, to judge regarding people's behavior. In verse 6, we've got to judge who are pigs and dogs. Later, in chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, we've got to judge who are wolves among the sheep. In chapter 10, verses 11 to 15, the disciples are instructed to judge who was worthy in the different towns and villages where they would minister. In chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, Jesus will instruct his disciples together as a church to judge whether or not an individual should be regarded as a member of the church or not. And that's just in Matthew's gospel. In John 7, 24, Jesus plainly commands his followers to Judge. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So how do we do this? How do we judge in a way that is not judgmental? And what does that even mean? How do we inject a dose of humility into our proper judging? First, we need to remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Paul says that in Romans 8, 1. If God has not condemned and will not condemn those who are in Christ, we should certainly avoid pronouncing condemnation against those who are in Christ. Jesus is talking about how we address each other, followers of Jesus talking to other followers of Jesus. If someone claims to be a follower of Jesus, we ought to be very hesitant very slow to tell them that they are headed to hell, that they are guilty, that they stand condemned before God. Now, there's some tension here, isn't there? Even within this sermon, Jesus has warned his disciples of the danger of hell. Remember back in chapter 5, Jesus said that anger in the heart, insults from the mouth, lust in the imagination deserve eternal punishment in hell. There is a difference between a warning and a judgment. Jesus was not saying that there that if you ever explode in anger, if you ever call somebody names, or if you ever look at a woman and have inappropriate thoughts or desires about her, you are condemned to hell. This isn't like monopoly. Jesus was not saying go directly to hell, do not pass go, do not collect $200. He was issuing a warning. If you keep on in that pattern of thinking, 
If you don't repent and turn away from that kind of behavior, you will find yourself facing the wrath of God. Do you see the difference? Warnings always imply an opportunity to repent, to avoid judgment. Jesus wants us to warn each other, but not to pronounce condemnation over each other. One writer says it this way, Following Christ requires our recognizing that the one I am tempted to judge is like me, a person who has received the forgiveness manifest in the cross. Jesus died to provide total and complete forgiveness for all the sins of those who trust him, those who follow him. I revel in that fact when I think about my own sins, but I need to remember that when I remember the sins or notice the sins of other followers of Jesus. Secondly, I need to remember that God is the judge. He is the only one who has the right to pronounce final condemnation on a person's life. When I attempt to do that, I am usurping God's role as judge. That's what the illustration in verse 2 is pressing home to us. Look at it again, the first part of verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Jesus is saying, so you want to sit on the judge's bench and condemn one of your brothers to hell? Go ahead. But remember, you're going to have your day in court And the true judge doesn't take too kindly to sinful people pretending to do his job for him. I've always struggled with this idea. If I'm harsh toward a fellow believer in Jesus when they sin, if I've ever condemned someone for their behavior, if I've ever thought that person's going to hell because of the way they're living their lives, then my judging somehow dictates The way God is going to judge me when my day in court arrives. God extends mercy to murderers, amnesty to adulterers, grace to grumblers, forgiveness to failures. But if I condemn someone to hell, that's a surefire way of guaranteeing that God is going to condemn me to hell. Jesus adds the image of the measure to clarify what he means. But you've got to understand the background to get the clarification. Look again at the second half of verse 2. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When a person went to the market to purchase grain, the buyer would supply a measuring cup of his own to the seller to measure out the grain. This was probably to protect the buyer from the seller cheating him. Otherwise, I could imagine the seller advertising, one cup of grain costs so much money, And the buyer comes up and requests one cup of grain, and then the seller brings out this little tiny cup, fills it with grain, and then charges him an exorbitant price. So instead, the buyer would bring the measuring cup that he normally uses in his home to the market, hand it over to the seller, and say, I want to buy one cup of grain. The seller would then take the buyer's cup and fill it up with grain, and they would haggle about the price. So how does this image apply to what Jesus is saying about judging? I think it works like this. You know that God is going to use the cup you bring. So you have basically two choices. The cup of mercy or the cup of condemnation. Which cup do you expect God to use? The cup of mercy, of course. 
And you've got biblical instruction that tells you that God's children, followers of Jesus, can expect to receive mercy on Judgment Day. So how does this transfer to real life and real relationships? Earlier, following the Lord's Prayer, Jesus had said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. Forgiven people forgive people and should expect continued forgiveness from their Father. So here, if we expect our Heavenly Father to extend mercy to us on Judgment Day, then we should extend mercy to our brothers and sisters when they sin. That seems to be the point. So Jesus begins by telling us how not to deal with sin in each other's lives, but then he paints a picture that shows us that he does want us to deal with sin in each other's lives in a particular way. He offers an illustration from Joseph's carpentry shop. Now, I don't know whether that was actually the name of the Joseph's family business, but the picture Jesus paints sure could have come from his own experience. He pictures two brothers working in a carpentry shop, and Jesus would have worked with his brothers in his father's carpentry shop. He sets up the image in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Two brothers working in the carpentry shop both have a problem. One brother has a speck of sawdust in his eye, but Jesus is talking directly to the other brother. And he says the other brother has a log in his own eye. This is where the illustration gets blown out of reality. Jesus is purposely painting a ridiculous picture to get his point across. One writer describes it like this. Here comes Mr. Log in the eye. He has in his eye one of those main beams that holds up a house, which in Jesus' day were about 40 feet long and 5 feet around. Think about the ridiculousness of that image. The log is 5 feet around. That's wider than a man's whole head, way too large to be protruding out of his eye. Now, I want you to think about this scenario very carefully for a moment. Jesus introduces the situation by asking Mr. Log in the eye why he sees the speck of sawdust in his brother's eye. But even if he didn't have a log obscuring his vision, the question really could be, how can you see the speck in your brother's eye? Think about it. If I had an eyelash in my eye, even if you were standing right next to me, you wouldn't be able to see it, right? How would you know that I have an eyelash in my eye? Well, I'd have to let you know. Either you could draw the conclusion because I'm up here rubbing my eye repeatedly, or I could say out loud, I have something in my eye. I think we're supposed to infer that from what Jesus says here. How would one brother know the other one had a piece of sawdust in his eye? The one with the sawdust would have to say something about it. Now, most folks recognize that the imagery of the speck and the log represents sin in the lives of these two men. We can conclude this because of the context of judging or condemning that Jesus starts with in this paragraph. So, both men have sin in their lives. Many students of Scripture typically conclude that the speck represents a small, insignificant, minor sin in the life of the one man, while the log represents a gross, obvious, heinous, major sin in the life of the other man. Personally, I don't think that's the point. 
I think the difference between the two men is not that one has a major sin and the other has a minor sin. The difference that Jesus highlights is that Mr. Log in the eye is not admitting and dealing with his own sin. Whereas the man with the speck in his eye is attempting to deal with his own sin. Verse 4 reveals the main issue Jesus wants to address. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Mr. Log in the eye is in the right place to help his brother deal with his own sin, but he is not prepared. He is unable to provide assistance. What disqualifies him? He refuses to acknowledge and deal with his own sin, with the log in his own eye. And that's the sin that he's indulging in his own life. Now, I actually wrote the sin that he's struggling with at first. But I don't think that's fair to say. The man with the speck is struggling with his sin. He's admitting it. He's seeking help. Mr. Log in the eye is ignoring or denying that he's got anything in his own eye. He's not struggling in any sense. He's being ruled by his sin. It's dominating his life. This disqualifies him from helping his brother. Folks, here's the issue. Jesus wants us to help each other grow. Jesus wants us to help each other repent and experience victory over sin in our lives. You don't need a master's degree in biblical counseling to help someone overcome their sin. The prerequisite Jesus emphasizes here is that you focus on dealing with your own sin. In verse 5, Jesus directs a stinging rebuke to Mr. Log in the eye. Look at verse 5 again. You hypocrites. This is the only time in Matthew's gospel where hypocrite is used with possible direct reference to Jesus' disciples. Usually it is Jesus' term for the Pharisees. Hypocrisy occurs when the outside doesn't match the inside. So why is Mr. Log in the Eye a hypocrite? Because he's refusing to acknowledge and deal with his own sin before he offers to help someone with their sin. He's presenting himself as a counselor, qualified to help someone deal with their sin. All the while, he is ignoring and covering up his own sin. But shouldn't we give him credit for loving his neighbor? Shouldn't we applaud him for not being self-focused and attempting to reach out to help someone else? No. He is ill-equipped to help his brother. And if he attempts to help while in this state, he will hurt his brother. Think about the ridiculous picture again. The guy has a 40-foot long, 5-foot around beam post sticking out of his face. To help someone get a piece of sawdust out of their eye, you've got to get face to face with them. You've got to get super close, really intimate. And if you've got a big log in your face, if you get face to face with somebody else, guess what you end up doing? Crushing them. Crushing them. I've shared this story before here, I think. Some of you may remember it because it's gross. When I was a freshman in high school, I was clipping my fingernails one morning before riding the school bus into school, and a piece of my pinky nail shot up into my eye. It hurt. I couldn't get it out. 
I tried rinsing my eyes out. I tried rubbing it around. I was the first kid to get picked up on the school bus, and I had about an hour before I'd make it to school. So while on the bus, I kept trying to get it out, and I began panicking. What if I couldn't get it out? What if it scratched my eye and did permanent damage to my vision? What if I went blind in one eye? I really needed to hear the sermon from two weeks ago. (laughs) When I arrived at school, instead of going to the school nurse, I went to my own personal nurse, Tamara. We were dating in high school. I told her that I had a fingernail in my eye. She got nose to nose with me, tilted my head, and ever so carefully and gently extracted the nail. What's the point? If we're going to embody the positive picture of what Jesus is describing here, we're going to have to get really close to each other. We're going to have to be vulnerable and authentic. We're going to have to freely, regularly, and honestly admit our failures, sins, and weaknesses to each other. We're going to have to reject hypocrisy in all its forms. The Pharisees that Jesus so often referred to as hypocrites, I think they knew they were hypocrites. I think they intentionally put on masks, pretended to be holier than everyone else, intending to deceive people about who they really were. We can do that as well, can't we? We can be so afraid of what people will think of us, how they might judge or condemn us, that we hide our true selves. We refuse to open up about our failures and our struggles. And some of us have good reasons to do this. We have opened up and people didn't listen. Or people genuinely wanting to help tried to offer a quick fix, a band-aid for a missing limb. Or worse, we have opened up and people carried news of our wound to other people in gossip. Instead of receiving help, We receive judgment from people we didn't even tell about our struggle. It might be time for a little self-inspection. We should all ask ourselves, have I contributed to someone else's hypocrisy by gossiping about them or by the way I've responded to their vulnerability? This kind of hypocrisy can be a self-protective reflex, as unpremeditated as putting your hand over your eyes to shield them from the sun. Those involved in ministry can be particularly prone toward this. Our desire to help others is so strong that we don't pay attention to the ulcers eating away at our own souls. We feel that we must become lone rangers who must be above receiving help because we're called to sacrifice ourselves, deny ourselves, and give of ourselves to help others. There is great spiritual wisdom in the flight attendants almost universally ignored pre-flight instructions. In the case of a crisis on the plane, put your own oxygen mask on first before attempting to help even your own children put on theirs. Indeed, that's a good picture of Jesus' counsel in verse 5. Look at the rest of verse 5. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Mr. Log in the eye needs to admit and deal with his own sin in order to be prepared to help someone else deal with their sins. So Jesus puts the responsibility on our shoulders here. However, Jesus is working within the confines of the illustration. 
If we take into account the rest of Scripture and even the bottom line point of this very passage, we need to recognize that Mr. Log in the eye needs just as much help getting rid of the log in his eye as does his brother with the speck in his eye. But I am responsible for my own sin. I am responsible to repent from my own sin. No one can repent for me. But in order for someone to help me, whether log or speck, I've got to ask for help. I've got to say out loud where other people can hear me, I need help. I don't think we're very good at that in general. So maybe, can we practice together? Will you say it with me? All together now. I need help. One more time. I need help. Good. That's practice. In real life, you don't have to yell it out in front of everybody. But you do need to tell somebody. This needs to become the normal rhythm of each of our lives. We struggle with sin. It's interesting to think about that. In fact, it's something I've puzzled over for years, both personally and academically. Why do followers of Jesus, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, loved and provided for by our Heavenly Father, why do we continue in sin? Isn't the Holy Spirit living inside me powerful enough to snap His spiritual fingers and transform me in an instant? In fact, doesn't He do that very thing sometimes? Haven't you had the experience of being tempted or struggling with a particular sin for a period of time and then suddenly, without you so much as telling even your own spouse, the urge disappears, the craving stops, the pull is gone. The Spirit does that sometimes. But isn't it more normal? Isn't it typical that the Spirit delights to use somebody else to help you deal with your sin? I think the scriptures bear this out. I might even suggest that this is the normal way that the Spirit works out our sanctification, our growth in holiness, our conformity to the image of Jesus, our day-to-day -day obedience to Jesus. And it's the normal way that the Spirit enables us to experience victory over sin in our own lives. Remember, the victory over sin has already been won. Jesus broke the power of sin at the cross he died to pay the penalty for your failures, for your sins, dare we say, for your hypocrisy. When you trust Jesus, you're trusting that he's vanquished sin and Satan so that sin and Satan no longer rule over you. He rose from the dead to set you free from sin. You have been set free from sin. And He has sent His Spirit to live inside each one of us so that we can experience that freedom, experience that victory over sin in day-to-day -day life. But He often chooses to use other people in the process of helping us experience that victory. Jesus' instructions here could be summarized in a four-step process as Pastor Doug O'Donnell has summarized it. Step one, see the log in your own eye. Step two, remove it. Repent of your sin. Step three, see the speck in your brother's eye. Step four, remove it. Take the speck out. 
He elaborates on steps three and four. The loving thing to do is to rebuke and remove sin. This involves one, seeing your brother's sin, two, helping your brother see his sin, and three, having him lie down, open his eyelids, and trust you, even you, with the one-time log in your eye to remove it carefully and caringly. This sounds a bit like performing surgery, and it is. Pastor O'Donnell suggests that we see here the physicianhood of all believers. You've heard the priesthood of all believers. But he recognizes that Jesus seems to describe a physicianhood of all believers. He writes, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are all physicians. Ah, the physicianhood of all believers. And just as we should not be taken aback, if a doctor were to tell us that something is wrong with our eye and that the cure might hurt a bit... So we should not be surprised by the sins our brothers and sisters see in us. Specks that need to be seen and removed for our own spiritual health. I want this body of believers that we call Alfred Allman Bible Church to be as healthy as we possibly can in this world. One of the areas we can grow in is learning to more lovingly, skillfully, and carefully help each other grow beyond our sinful struggles And heal from the damage we've experienced. And again, it does not require a master's degree in biblical counseling. Some knowledge of the gospel and how it applies, how it works out in our lives, certainly is necessary. But one thing that will surely disqualify us from being able to genuinely help someone else is refusing to get help to deal with our own sins and struggles. As we come to the last verse of this passage, I need to acknowledge that this verse is difficult. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So what about those dogs and pigs? First, let me illustrate the structure of the verse. It is a proverbial kind of statement. Jesus often concludes a section of his teaching with a proverb of sorts. But as most students of Scripture have recognized, this particular statement seems to be structured in the form of a chiasm or chiasm. If you can put that next slide on the screen. Uh, Shaped like this, where the first part of the sentence matches up with the last part and the two statements in the middle go together. Most of our English translations don't make this clear, although the original English translation produced by John Wycliffe from the Latin Vulgate into Middle English did. So, do not give dogs what is holy, lest they turn to attack you. He starts with a reference to dogs, and the final reference is to the dogs. Then the two middle middle pieces both refer to the pigs. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot. Before we can apply this, we need to understand the imagery, and that's the hard part. First, do not give dogs what is holy is probably... A reference to some Old Testament laws which specify the treatment of food handled and eaten by the priests in the temple. You could read Leviticus 22 if you want the details. The priest is forbidden from eating meat from an animal that is killed by another animal out in the wild. Okay? So what are you supposed to do with meat from an animal that was killed by another animal out in the wild? Well... 
Exodus 22, 31 gives you the answer. You're supposed to throw it to the dogs. The implication is that meat from an animal that was killed by another animal out in the wild cannot be holy. So it's not fit for human consumption, or at least for priestly consumption, but it can be tossed to the dogs. So the corollary would be that you should not give food that has been consecrated, made holy, to dogs. Now, be sure you don't get the wrong image in your head here. Jesus is not referring to Fluffy the Cocker Spaniel who lives with your mom. He's not referring to a sweet little pet here. He's referring to wild dogs. Think of coyotes, or perhaps even better, jackals. The warning is that throwing out good meat, holy food, to these jackals will incite them to aggressively turn on you, thinking that you're holding out on them. If you give them better fare than they've had scavenging out at the local dump, they'll assault you to get more. So what about the pigs? Well, if you toss shiny pearls out to a bunch of pigs, they'll assume that they're nice pods of food. But then when they bite down and break their teeth on a pearl, they're going to bury the pearl, trampling what is valuable to you down into the ground like so much unwanted garbage. So how does this or how could this connect with the previous verses? What is holy and your pearls could represent your counsel, your attempts to help someone deal with sin. Perhaps with this vivid imagery, Jesus is warning us about the possible negative outcome of our attempts to help someone with sin that we've observed in their life. I'd like to consider a possible parallel in Matthew 18. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, that would be good. We're going to see some of the verses on the screen, but I'm going to summarize much of what's there. Here, in Matthew 7, in the midst of the kingdom life discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ever so briefly considers the loving art of speck removal, as one writer has summarized it. Jesus briefly encourages the work of helping each other deal with the sin in our lives. But in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, in what I've called his kingdom church discourse, Jesus will elaborate on this process. Let me briefly summarize the familiar passage. Beginning in verse 15, Jesus pitches the scenario that your brother, someone in the church with you, has sinned. And you witnessed it or it was directly against you. What should you do? Jesus says that you should go to that person privately and tell him or her... What you said or what you did doesn't fit with how the scriptures say Jesus' followers should live. If personal hurt was involved, the person could add something like, I'm struggling with the pain of what you did and I want to work things out. Ideally, the other person would respond by saying something like, oh, you're right. I'm so sorry. I see that what I said or what I did was displeasing to God and hurtful to you. Please forgive me. Then you hug or shake hands or something, and you go on with normal life, able to interact with each other as though the offense had never taken place. But the person might respond differently. He might say, oh, you're just being sensitive. You know I didn't mean that. I didn't do anything wrong. But you still feel hurt, or you still believe that the other person has indeed sinned in light of clear biblical teaching, and you can't just overlook it. So Jesus says, get a couple of friends who can mediate. Take them with you to talk with the person again. So, y'all go together to talk with the person. You might say, look, 
I know we already talked about this, but I still feel hurt, or I still think you need to repent. This is what you said. This is what you did. It really hurt me, and I don't think we can move forward until we sort this out. The other parties that you've invited might say something like, friend, we're here for both of you. We want to listen to what both of you have to say and see if this is maybe a misunderstanding. We want to help provide some perspective for both of you. Then after the person who apparently sinned talks about what happened and the friends ask some clarifying questions, provide some insight into the situation, ideally the person would respond by saying something like, oh, you're right. I'm so sorry. I now see that what I said or what I did was displeasing to God and or hurtful to you. Please forgive me. Thanks, friends, for helping us sort this out. And then you hug or shake hands or something and you go on with normal life as able to interact as though the offense had never taken place. But, of course, Jesus acknowledges that it doesn't always go so well. The person who hurts you might say, wait a minute. Why are you ganging up on me like this? I haven't done anything wrong. Why are you telling my business to other people? If the person responds with defensiveness, Jesus has this to say in verse 17. Look at it with me. Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. It's highly disconcerting to think that we might need to stand up here and say... Joe Grinch said something mean and nasty to me the other day. I confronted him. He denied it. I took a couple of friends to help us reconcile and he got defensive. Here's what exactly happened. Why must the situation be brought to the attention of the entire church family? Sin is no private matter between the sinner and the Savior. Sin is family business. Each member of this church has a responsibility to care for every other member of this church. And that includes helping each other deal with sin whenever it is present and whenever repentance is not immediately forthcoming. Said differently, siblings don't let siblings continue in sin. One writer compares the situation Jesus presents to the crew of a ship when someone falls overboard into the water and is in danger of drowning. He writes, When a man on a ship goes overboard, all hands are called on deck for the rescue operation. When a church member, someone who professes to be a follower of Jesus, continues in unrepentant sin, even after that sin has been exposed and confronted, Jesus is helping us see the serious danger that person is in. The possibility of self-deception. The possibility of a person's profession of faith being false or hypocritical is real and serious. And unrepentant sin points in the direction of a person who doesn't truly know Jesus. Whatever they might say in their testimony and whatever church they might be a member of. Many churches today, including Alfred Allman Bible Church, typically allow the elders to represent the body in these matters. So if it comes to this point in your experiences of conflict or dealing with sin amongst each other, then I think it's honoring Jesus' instruction here if you bring the matter to the elders and allow them to intervene and intercede. Ideally, the elders are able to provide some biblical insight into the situation that can move the impasse toward resolution. That's always the goal. Ideally, the person would listen to what the church has to say 
or what the elders have to say. And then the person might respond, oh, I never thought about what I did in the light of the scripture you're sharing with me. You were right. I've sinned and I'm so sorry I hurt you. Please forgive me. Thank you, elders, for shepherding us to restoration. But, of course, Jesus again acknowledges the painful reality that it doesn't always go so well. The person might respond in outrage. How dare you smear my name to the elders of this church? Why is it any of their business what happened between the two of us? If the person holds on to his defensiveness and continues to refuse to admit that he's in the wrong, when everybody who's gotten involved agrees that he's done wrong, and that's kind of a key point here, the goal of getting others involved is to establish the facts of the matter. Jesus gives the final instructions for what to do in this situation. Look again at verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does this mean? Jesus seems to be saying that at this point, because of the person's refusal to repent, refusal to admit sin that is scripturally and publicly verifiable, The church should consider this person to be a non-believer. The person may continue claiming to be a follower of Jesus, but a fundamental characteristic of genuine followers of Jesus, according to Scripture, is that they admit their sins. I wonder if Jesus could have said, let him be to you as a dog and a pig. Dogs and pigs, from the Jewish vantage point, were not nice ways of referring to Gentiles, pagans outsiders. It seems that Jesus is perhaps borrowing that image. So back to Matthew 7. If we can tie verse 6 in with verses 1 to 5, I think Jesus is saying essentially that as you seek to help someone deal with their sin, you may discover that they're not really a follower of Jesus. You may find that a person refuses to repent. This is not the struggler. This is not the person who is trying who is listening to what you have to say. This is the person who hears your advice and treats it as garbage. This is the person who hears your advice and gets hostile toward you for offering to help. The question is, how long do you work with someone? How long do you keep offering to help someone deal with sinful patterns as they reject or ignore your advice? How long do you persevere with someone before you say, I can't do this anymore? Jesus says there should be a limit. But the question of when do I move on does not have an easy answer. I suppose we must say that it requires biblical godly wisdom to know when. Do I keep working with this person, seeking to help them understand the gospel better, seeking to help them overcome their sin for a few weeks, months, years? Decades? I don't know. Each situation has to be considered individually and with prayer. It's interesting that prayer is the next topic of discussion in this sermon. We'll come to that next week. I don't want to end on an ominous note here. This passage ultimately presents a beautiful picture of the church to us. We want to be a church full of people who are authentically vulnerable, willing to say, I need help. We want to be a church full of people who are actively fighting sin in their own lives with the help of others, 
dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit for success. We want to be a church full of people who love each other enough to reach into the messiness of someone else's life without elevating ourselves above them. We want to be a church full of people who refuse to sit on the judge's bench and pronounce condemnation over other people. The church is the bride of Christ, and he will have a pure bride. One of the ways he maintains his bride's purity until he returns for her is through this process of individuals dealing properly with their own sin with the help of others in the body. Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8 provides a picture of what we're talking about here. The Apostle John hears an epic voice praising and celebrating the reign, the kingdom of God. And the voice says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. I'll stop there for just a second. Notice that he says that the bride has made herself ready, prepared herself. The imagery fits with familiar wedding practices in our own day, though that's not the kind of thing they were thinking of in John's day. But it fits where a bride wakes up on her wedding day early, gets her hair and makeup done, makes herself as beautiful as possible in order to be presented to her groom later that afternoon. But in verse 8, we see the constant tension of Scripture between God's sovereign involvement and our human responsibility. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. God, by His grace, gives to the bride the privilege of clothing herself with fine linen. And John tells us what the metaphor means. The wedding dress of the bride of Christ represents the deeds of righteousness practiced by individual believers throughout the church age. Christians are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, to borrow language from earlier in the book of Revelation. Our deeds, our deeds can only be righteous can only make up this beautiful white wedding dress because we've been cleansed by the death of Jesus. Apart from Jesus, no good deed in this world is pure. No good deed can be truly righteous before God. But as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The old hymn raises the question, have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? For those of you who don't know Jesus, don't have a relationship with Him, or those of you who recognize that you're not wedded to Christ, the question the hymn asks is poetic and metaphorical, but the cleansing that is offered is quite real. The real question is, have you acknowledged your sin and guilt before God? Have you looked to Jesus' death on the cross as the only payment for your sin that could ever be enough? To believe in Jesus is to believe that He is the eternal Son of God who came into this world as a man, lived a fully human life, 
fully obedient to God life and offered himself as a sacrifice to pay the death penalty for sin. The penalty that you yourself deserve. To believe in Jesus is to believe that Jesus rose from the dead as the rightful ruler over this world. The true king to whom alone you owe ultimate allegiance. And that he welcomes sinners into this forever family. When you believe that, you receive the true cleansing. So that whatever sins you've committed, whatever shame you carry, whatever sins you may commit for the rest of your life, you will not, do not, cannot bring, receive a stain that will ruin you. You are clean forever. Receive that cleansing today so that when you sin from now on, and you will, you can count on the Holy Spirit to enable you to repent. And you can count on your brothers and sisters to help you practically turn away from the destructive power of sin. If the music team would join me on stage, we're going to sing that old classic hymn. Just one verse raising that question. Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? And I hope that everyone hearing the sound of my voice can answer that question. Yes.